Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We'll kind of bring us up to speed about where we are. We we were beginning to close the book of Genesis with the Joseph narrative, right? The Joseph novella closes the book of Genesis. And it is Joseph's descent you know, into Egypt, his rise to power in Egypt, then bringing his family down to Egypt due to the famine. That is how the story of Exodus gets set up. Because his family comes down to Egypt and they multiply there, that's how we set up the story of, the, of us becoming slaves, right? How, how, did, how did Genesis, we saw it, we talked about it, how did it get set up that the population could be enslaved so easily? They became tenant farmers. They became tenant farmers. Whose idea was that? Joseph. Joseph. All right. So let us not forget, and David keeps reminding us that he was a good businessman. He was doing his job. I would hire him as my CEO. He would hire him as his CEO. Um, but we, we tend to think of the, you know, the enslavement as this evil Pharaoh. It's Joseph who set up the conditions by which the people were impoverished and became dependent and everything was centralized uh, under Pharaoh. So it is, what I like about that, as a, somebody who's struggling really hard to be spiritually mature, <laughs> is that I think it's important that Torah understands it to be partly our responsibility. Right? It's just, Joseph set the circumstances. Yes, of course, Pharaoh's terrible, of course. And, right, we have some folks who have a part in creating a system that is unjust, that marginalizes people, that allows for oppression and silencing, right, and learned helplessness and dependency and despondency. That gets set up by one of ours who's pretty effective is one way to talk about it. Greedy is another. And, and if you look at any CEO that's worth a lot of money right now, where's that line? I'm not, right? I'm not so sure. But, um, but I know that we're living in a world that is governed by Josephs. And the decisions are made by the Josephs. And a lot of us are deeply concerned about the values of and I can only talk about here, but but our society that we're living in that seem to do that that, that the gap is growing between right the rich and and the poor. All right, I saw a hand, Ruben. Well, it should be read that uh, the, uh, the regulations that he imposed were on everybody, not just on. The Correct. Correct. Yeah. That's right. So so it just kind of sets up. So if you look at Nazi Germany, that didn't happen in a vacuum. The rise of the Nazi party didn't happen because the Jews were doing something, right? It happened because the entire population on some level was distressed. And then it's easy. When everybody is distressed and everybody's flipping out, that's when it's really easy to get the population to turn on one group and scapegoat right comes from these books by the way right to scapegoat that group and blame them for the situation you're in so your point is well taken that it wasn't just the hebrews it was the entire population that makes it really easy and it wasn't just that and it wasn't just then it's universal right so when the population is impoverished and there's no hope and whatever it makes it very in economic distress like that it makes it very easy to isolate one group and it's often the Jews, let's be honest. Um, but anyone who's different, anyone who's other, anyone who came from somewhere else, that's really easy, isn't it? You're not one of us. You're a foreigner. Go home. And if you're going to be here, you know, you better be ready for what that means if you're going to try to stay in our country, right? This is why, again, this is a powerful story for me. We are the other. We are the foreigners. We are the immigrants. And we have been ever since. And I deeply value that our foundational narrative is not that it was our land and those people came in and took away our job, right? Our story is we were the ones who had nowhere to go. 
We were the ones who were starving because of the conditions where we come from. We're the ones who moved. Refugees. We were refugees. We were refugees. Joseph sponsored a bunch of refugees, right, to come in and live in Egypt. So um, it's a deeply important narrative for me. Uh, one of, and I'm proud of that narrative. I'm proud that our stories, we started as nothing, <laughs> like, right? In, 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 our, in our national story, because we're leaving Genesis, we're leaving the family, the clan narrative, and we're moving into, as cinematic history has given us, birth of a nation, mm-hmm. right? We're, we're moving now, we're beginning in the book of Exodus, the story of the birth of a nation. We've left the private story of Abraham and Sarah's clan, which is important and lovely and foundational and wonderful, and we're moving into the birth of a nation. Our, our narrative, history, our mythic history about how we became a people. For me, I value it very much that it begins with we were refugees and got in big trouble, right? And were oppressed for 400 years, had nothing. That's a really important place for me to start. So why am I hammering that so hard? Because what we're studying this week, right? We have to kind of always balance those. I don't, you know, I'm not loving the text that we're going to study this week. I will say that out loud. I'm going to let us get whatever feelings and associations we have out there about it before we even start. Um, We have to remember the people who crafted this story wrote it on purpose the way it is. Right? It's very important, especially when we come to this part of our story that we're going to look at today, that we remember this is mythic history. This is a story that people told about what happened. It's not history. And for me, it's not theology. So let's just remember that as we go into um, Parshat Va'era, which we'll get to in just a second. So they're, they're in Egypt. They become the focus of being a forced labor pool. Yes? What do you mean when you say, for me, it's not theology? When it says God said to Moses, I don't believe that that is literally true. So I don't, when it says God brought the plague of, I don't believe that's true. I believe it's our mythic history about what those people wrote, right, and projected onto the deity. For me, it's more metaphor and or there's ways the tradition has wrangled it into a spiritual teaching I can live with, right? There's other parts of it I can't, but that's why I'm a reconstructionist. That's why I'm not a fundamentalist, right? Because I, I don't need, to, thank God, to believe that, that this is true. I, not, not true. I should be careful about my words. I don't need to believe that this actually happened and was caused by God. It's an allegory. It's an allegory. So then, that's a way I, I have into the text, um, and I just want to be really clear about that. Or it really happened. I'm I'm gonna have to think about that. I'm gonna have to think about that. Um, One can choose. The I see. I don't think I can. I think I have to say it couldn't have happened, or I wouldn't stand here. Because oh, I I am this. The events may have happened, right? Scientifically, you can look at the death of the frogs leads to anthrax. So I'm not saying that that the events couldn't have happened. I do not, I am very clear, my God did not make this happen. I don't have a God who would do that. Because then I have a God who would allow Auschwitz Mm -hmm. and not intervene there. So that for me, that's a bottom line, that I do not believe in a God who would do this. Yes? But these are things that people do. It's true with the capital T and that... Correct. And that's what. And that's a. That's the way in. That's right. That's exactly right. And people suffer. And there are plagues happening all over our planet. We are responsible for some of it, right? The laws of nature are responsible for others of it. Sometimes it's an interaction between those, right? Unwitting or otherwise. I don't believe God causes them. We we live in an age where we've kind of lost the art of allegory. And Completely. We, we, we live in a so-called scientific age, and so what has moved human beings for thousands of years, and still some people today, the, the ability to accept stories as a different kind of a truth than the sun goes around 
or, or the, the earth goes around the sun. They're, they're different kinds of truth. We kind of have lost that. And so Correct. people apply, quote, scientific truth as if that's the only kind of truth. We, and we have, we have lost the understanding of the deep importance of myth. The, not only the value, but the incredible importance of speaking at the mythic level. Because yeah, for us, if you say that's a myth, it that didn't, kind of means it's false. Right. That's it's right. It's not real. That's right. Um, and which is not the case. Which is how we're able, I think, to continue, right, with this narrative around the Seder table every single year because there's still a deep mythic set of truths that we wrestle with every year. Yeah. Are, are you saying you, you don't believe this because um, a god who would bring plagues, who, ch- who gets involved with human activity, would therefore not allow, would have gotten involved with Auschwitz? Correct. Okay. Um, you know, when I read this story, uh, I see it based on that, it would be that Pharaoh had no free will then. But based on what? Based on, you're saying that God set up the conditions and Pharaoh basically was a pawn in the story. <coughs> and I don't read it like this at all. I see Pharaoh having free will. Well, why does one necessitate the other? I, I, you've lost me there. Um, that You're saying that God got involved with the plagues. And therefore something, and therefore it changed the outcome. No, that's not what I said. The tradition has God being omnipotent and omniscient, but gives human beings free will. God knew what Cain and Abel, what was going to go on there, right? So it didn't, it didn't take away Cain's choice. It doesn't take away anyone's choice for God. This, I'm talking about traditionally. It's not my belief system, but. The tradition we come out of says God knows what people will choose. That doesn't take away their free will. So, right? So God knows Pharaoh's going to say no. Here comes the next plague that God brings. Right? In response to Pharaoh's free choice. Now, the problem we have is the hardening of the heart business. And we dealt with that last year. Go listen to the podcast from last year. We dealt, we spent the whole lesson on the hardening of the heart and what that means. Um, or, you know, some ideas about what it could mean. Um, cause the tradition sees what would it mean to say God gave Hitler choice. It's like Hitler's already so warped that there, that, Yes, there's choice, but also it's already so ingrained that, you know, and I mean, this seems to be the way the tradition deals with it, but. I, 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 just to belabor the point. Okay. Um, <laughs> um, is that because we have the, the situation in Egypt, it led to us getting a land, and one could argue, I'm not going to argue that point, about the Holocaust that it led to the birth of Israel. One could make that point. Yeah. It has absolutely no theological meaning for me whatsoever. Yeah. And it is not worth the sacrifice of six million... Uh, of course. No, you're saying of course, and yet are making the argument veiled, but making the argument that, as it's true here, it could be said of the Shoah. I am not willing to say it about this, and I'm not willing to say it about the Shoah. There is nothing worth Six million innocent lives. Hundred percent, and yet the history shows that's what happened. That has nothing to do with God making it happen, which is what you're talking about here. Well, isn't this? Isn't Isn't the macro story here that people saying? Our God is stronger than the strongest person. Hundred percent. So let, let's hold on. It's a whole big. Story so let's hold on because there's two that. things I want to say. Because Pam brings up really important issues. These are really important. These are at the core of what our whole progressive idea of Judaism is about. So to the point, the tradition has no problem saying that God did this to glorify God's self. I heard you say earlier there was some reservation. But well, wait a minute. Then that means God made this happen. The tradition. The tradition is unapologetic that God made this happen so God is glorified in the region. So we get rid of this polytheistic understanding that El and Baal and Ishtar have any power. It is the God of Israel and shows the entire region, right, that I am the God of Israel. I'm the only powerful God. I'm the only one. I'm the biggest one. I'm the strongest one. 
The tradition is unapologetic about that. I have a real problem with that, obviously. That's why it's not my theology, right? So, and, and there are, there are people who, the other thing I want to say about our other point, there are people who make the argument that the Holocaust was so that, right? And that God allowed it so that. And, and that is terrifying to me. And so it's very easy to move from God allowed this to God allowed that. Because on some level, if you're going to be consistent, if God allowed, if God caused this, God allowed that. I cannot and will not go there. Yes. We're meaning making machines. Yes. And that goes to your point that if you want to go and like, if you like the Belgian toe, and who doesn't like the Belgian mm-hmm. toe? And um, we say that all that is put before you is for your benefit. I'm paraphrasing. Um, your only job is to become a detective. If you want to take that as a worldview and put that as a lens before your eyes, everything that happens for your benefit, be a detective, find the meaning, find the gift, find the lesson, then you can look at everything and you can make meaning. That's what this gentleman was saying over here. What's your name? Bert. 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 Okay. <laughs> I would never be so chuspedic as to contradict the Baal Shem Tov. However, I, I know, but I, I want to object to the word benefit. I'm not okay with that word. If you take that word out, I'm fine. Well, we can make meaning and take learning and growth. Yeah, not going with gifts and growth from the things that happen to us. It's not no. It, because what I'm saying is I want to make a distinction between the philosophy that says it's all for our good and, and the philosophy that says I can take what's happened got it, and I can change in response, right? And I can grow so that I can handle the next thing that comes and make meaning from that. It, I do not understand it as for my benefit. See, I too find it nonsensical. Just saying. Don't, don't tell God. I find it nonsensical. <laughs> but I do say that if you are a meaning-making machine, you can look at it because we're meaning-making machines. You have to say, all right, this happened, and can we find, can I find a lesson? Can I find an evolution? Can I use my intellect to find the good? So, again, I do not look at the Holocaust and find any good, nothing, no benefit, no growth, no goodness, no no benefit, nothing. I take from our experience and learning about the Shoah, which I did in great depth, unfortunately, at a very young age. I was at a private Jewish day school before they knew about what it does to children to show them actual Nazi footage. So I know it in great depth. Um, what I take from that is an understanding that it can never be allowed to happen to anybody else. Is that a benefit? I mean, you know, so this is where I, I feel like I can own that I grow and can be a better person in response to the suffering. I do not stop grieving the loss of not only the 12 million murdered in the Shoah, but their descendants. And just innocent life, and, and it's not just the Shoah because because that's so deeply a part of our tradition. Like here, we are a people that tends to say, "I stand with them. I march with King." Amen. Right, and that, that I can take from this to make meaning out of my suffering, or not my suffering. Halavai, I should say that their suffering. Um, I I don't tie that ever to. And so it's okay, you know, or this is a good thing that we get from. That's where I have to break. I have to make a break there. All right, we ready? Yeah. yeah. Oh my goodness. Okay. We haven't said the first. We haven't said the bracha. All right, right. Baruch atah Adonai Elmeinu Melech Haolam Asher Kitshanu B'Mitzvotah B'Tzivanu La'Asok B'Divrei Torah, which is why I love this bracha. Blessed are you. God, spirit of the universe, who makes us holy with your mitzvot and calls us to engage ourselves with the words of Torah. We don't have to buy a certain interpretation. We don't have to believe it. We don't have to like it. We are asked to engage, right? Wrestle. To wrestle. That's our, name. That's our name. Yisrael, the people who wrestle El. All right.
So we're at we're at that place where Moshe's been commissioned. That's a great story. That I can't wait till it's our turn to look at that in the triennial reading. Right, Moshe, who says oh, you you made a mistake. I'm the wrong guy. <laughs> right. Um, so Moshe's commissioned finally <laughs> after some negotiation, and then Moshe is told to go confront Pharaoh, and Moshe does that. And of course, as we know, Pharaoh says no. They can't go. And so then we get the ten consequences, right? We get um, the ten results of the ten times Pharaoh says no. What I want to point out that I don't know if you know, if you do, it's just a review, is that how many plagues do we have? Ten. Right. So the way scholars understand it, there are three triads of plagues. And then there's the coup de grace, which stands alone. The ultimate consequence of Pharaoh's recalcitrance is the slaying of the firstborn. So, so there, in each case, in each of these triads, the order, interestingly, is the same. About, in the first plague of that triad, Moshe is told to go to Pharaoh. This happened, you know. Then the second one, there's no warning. The plague just starts. In the third one, he lifts his, Aaron lifts the, so in each of the triads, the setup for the, the plague happening is the same. Until we get to Makat Bechorot, right? The slaying of the firstborn. So we today are here. We're at the beginning of the second triad of plagues in the narrative. So 10, we know this number. 10 was an important number of completion in the ancient world. Um, So we get the 10, right, things written on tablets. We get 10 of these. It's not an uncommon, right, that, that Yom Kippur is on the 10th day of the month. Like ten generations. Ten generations, right? So this is a common number in the ancient world. So it's not it's not unusual that we see that the big deal is uh, in sets of ten. So we are uh, chapter eight. We're in the third section, the third third of the parsha of Vaera. We are all familiar with some of this narrative. <clears throat> We're not necessarily terribly familiar with other parts of it. All right, so someone please read at, huh? Eight sixty-eight, chapter eight, verse sixteen. Read page three sixty-two in the herd. Three sixty-two. Page three forty-three. And the Lord said to Moses, early in the morning, present yourself to Pharaoh as he is coming out to the water and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may worship me. For if you do not let my people go, I will lose swarms of insects against you and your courtiers and your people and your houses. The houses of the Egyptians and the very ground they stand on shall be filled with swarms of insects. But on that day, I will set apart the region of Goshen where my people dwell, so that no swarms of insects shall be there, that you may know that I, the Lord, am in the midst of the land. And I will make a distinction between my people and your people. Tomorrow the sign shall come to pass, and the Lord did so. Heavy swarms of insects invaded Pharaoh's palace and the houses of his courtiers. Throughout the country of Egypt, the land was ruined because of the swarms of insects. Okay. Yeah. So, so... Back to Pam's original possibility of this being something that has occurred. It makes sense that this narrative would be grounded in the science and the natural experiences of the region. Right? When we talk about quail, remember the miracle of the quail that we have in the desert? And then we talked about that the quail actually make this migration and they have to rest. They're exhausted. And so when they land, they're easily killed. Right? It makes sense that these are rooted in kind of the the fauna and flora and growth agricultural cycles of Egypt. So if we're going to look at that, then the the scholars look to what remember what's happened. What happened first plague is 
What? Where? Ah, so the rivers are red, right, with something possibly iron, right, that turns the water red. I'm just giving you what the scientists are all about because it's kind of fun. Um, And that, in turn, makes the frogs jump out onto land, right, because they can't live in the water. Then they're on the land. They start to die, what happens? They can't eat the insect. They, they are, it, it's, it's vermin, it's like disgusting frog corpses mm-hmm. everywhere. Um, so you could imagine a natural occurrence that, that disrupts the river system, right? Fauna comes out of the water that can live on land, but in massive amounts, so then they're rotting on the land. And then, possibly, this is a kind of insect that, um, and we don't know this word. This is the only place we see this Hebrew word. This, uh. Which word? What the insects are? Yeah, so this, this, uh, arov, right? We, we don't get this. We, ma'ariv aravim, yes? We know this word, erev, evening. Mm-hmm. We know it, arov, mixture, mm-hmm. right? We've talked a lot. We talked when I was talking about Ubuntu, right? That, you know, that, that we're mixed up with each other. Um, so we know the root. We don't know it as applied to insects. It could mean a combined swarm of all kinds of nastiness in, in result, resulting from the rotting corpse. But remember, Torah doesn't care about the science. Torah is very clear. It is God who causes this. When Moshe says, right? Or, or in other words, even though it's rooted in the the experiences of the time so that their imagination, the people writing this, when they imagine disgusting horribleness, right, they take experiences that they're familiar with and magnify them. So I'm not denying that, you know, that, or I'm saying it's actually meaningful that, that we look at, at the fauna of the region and the agriculture of the region. It is very clear though that this is not there is no one who's going to apply the science to say that's what actually happens. The Torah, Torah's not interested, right, in that. It, it is very clear, and God brings the next episode. Um, I'm curious, um, just to go back a little bit, about the word blood. Is that the Hebrew um, word for blood, is it literally, is there only one word for blood, or is it does it mean redness, or... Dom is pretty clearly blood. Um, but if you say the waters turned to blood, if you don't know that iron is causing the river to turn an orangey red color, I mean, so bo- both and kind of. Mm-hmm. But we can't. That, that God is showing not only here, if you believe this, mastery over the natural world, but also precision and that Correct. realized you're not affected. Correct. So, and this is the first plague where that's true. This is the first plague, because we're seeing a progression. We have to think of this as a progression. We also tend to think about this as happening in a week. Goes one day, and there's frogs one day, and then Moshe comes back, and Pharaoh and then, and, 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 and this is a week and a half. This is a year. This takes a year. So it's a much more drawn out process. And so it's even more important that it's exactly when Pharaoh says no or or goes against his own, you know, promise that the next plague happens. It is absolutely about God's mastery, demonstrating God's control over nature, that there isn't a storm god and a frog god and a river god. There's yud hey vav right? That's what this story is designed to do. And I think too often... The questions we ask is how, how could this actually have quote happened, and not what does it mean? Correct, but because two totally, totally that's right. different things. Because how could this happen? Is you believe in a god that could make this happen? But it doesn't matter. It, that doesn't For, matter in terms of this. In terms of the story, the issue here is what is all this? You know, what are the themes? It's like myth. You know, period. well. Spiritual poetry. But uh, you just put two things together that I think generally are disjunctive. That either you believe, well, duh, how did it happen? God did it. Mm -hmm. God can do whatever God wants. But of course, for some of us, we're like, 
that's the wrong question. How could this happen? Right? Right. That's right. right. The question well, is, the all right, question, so but what do we do with this? I'm not saying it's the wrong question. It's a legitimate question. I'm not sure it takes you anywhere. I'm not sure it takes you anywhere that, that it's the, worth spending your mental time figuring it out. Well, there's nothing to figure out. Either you believe God brought it, or you believe it's... No, but I mean, but like, how could these be natural events? I, I've heard so many people, well, you know, like the blood. Well, it really could have been this. It really could have been that. <laughs> to me, that's storm? not the issue. <laughs> they still happen. They do. And it's terrifying. So what I'm saying is those images come out of actual experience that would have been terrifying. Right. People write out of the experience in terms that the, the people at that time could understand. But that's different from... Having TV cameras there and saying, and now the locusts are descending, news at 11. <laughs> Back to something you said earlier, and I hate to use this word, but this, this just strikes me as basically sort of a re- recruiting tool. Yeah. Uh, because, yeah. Because, yeah. Because, yeah. because as you've t- we've just talked about many times, there were all these gods, people believed all these things. They, they and so there was sort of a, a transition that went on over a long period of time. And this is part of the recruitment story. I agree. So, um, And it's a really important point you bring up that we can't forget, is that we tend to see the plagues as God demonstrating God's power for the rest of the world. We forget that God's got to recruit the Israelites. What have they been doing for 400 years in Egypt? Who... Who are they worshiping? What what do they think is the most important force in the universe? Have they been basically kind of doing the, you know, ISIS raw thing? You know, but we're descendants of people who believe we we have no idea. Torah's not so interested. Torah's very clear that God needs to do a pretty good job of recruiting. They were hauling household gods around, <laughs> right? And hiding them. And Egypt's the most powerful empire in the history of the universe at this point. Wouldn't you believe their gods are the most powerful gods? Mm-hmm. If they rule the world and they say Ra is the chief god of this empire, wouldn't you sign up with Ra? I would. Mm-hmm. Right back then, if you're gonna if you're gonna say there's a power responsible for this, I'm I'm with that one. <laughs> And it makes sense that God's got to say, whoa, 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 whoa. Right? Ra, Isis? I don't think so. Let's make that extraordinarily clear to the Israelites. Because what happens? This generation that a few pages from now walked through the flipping split sea. How long does it take them to doubt? Not very long. Right? God's not wrong. They they need a serious campaign because, right? It doesn't take these people long to to go back to oh no right and, and it probably was going on. I mean that, that's where when, when I we talked about it many times that, that it wasn't just an overnight oh monotheism let's go that way forget all that other I mean it had to go on a long time exactly. David, you refer to uh, the people who wrote the Torah. And mm-hmm. I think you maybe once said to me, I could be wrong, that it happened over hundreds or thousands of years. Mm-hmm. So then, if this is, I get the idea that this is sort of a recruiting tool, but not, you know, how much, how much uh, the people who wrote this section, mm-hmm. if the people who wrote this section, uh, how much after the fact that this happened, were they writing about something that was. You know, how much later are they looking back to say this is what happened thousands of years ago and who are they trying to recruit that they're writing it? Excellent questions. As we listen to the frogs and locusts ringing in the background. Thank you, Roseanne, for the sound effects. So so the people writing this are retrojecting it 1,000 to 1,200, 1,500 years before. When this 1300 so we're, we're, we're not, not sure, right. but it's very, very far after the events. V- the events, we'll put in quotes. The time that the events are set in is way long ago. Right. So, what is the point? So, what was going on in their world uh-huh. that they had to say, hey, we need to... Excellent question. Absolutely. Excellent question. These texts come from sources, right? Everything that goes to make up 
the book in front of you comes from a plethora of sources. They were chosen, the texts were chosen and put together and sold, right, as originally two books, right? Who commissions that is the, is a whole category, I'm not even joking, a whole category of study. There is a whole field dedicated to what we call the documentary hypothesis, and it's called a hypothesis still. I don't know why, because some people, I guess, still argue that God wrote this, whatever. So um, the documentary hypothesis is an entire field of study. There's been a lot of research done that dates some of these sources, right, to when they're first, like, written down, other research to figure out when are they set, um, the agenda depends, and it's a great question. The agenda depends on who you believe put them together. Who commissioned it and put it together? One argument is that it's David. Mm-hmm. That David's, David now is building a nation for the first time. It's been a loose confederation of tribes during the period of the judges. Right When there's a national emergency, this confederation of tribes picks a, tri- picks a military leader and follows that leader and becomes one united entity to beat off and to beat off invading enemies, right? But then they go back to doing their business. David is the first one to say, "No, we are now going to be a nation. Saul is the first king of this nation. It is David, the second king who who needs to put it together into a unified body, a unified, and that means you have to have a national story. And if you're going to have a national story of how the United States of America understands its history, as we talked about, you'd better have the War of Northern Aggression mentioned right alongside the Civil War. Right? The great unpleasantness between the states. Right? And, right? You have to have the northern and the southern tradition in that narrative or you can't build a nation. So part, so that's where we get some of the conflicting stuff. We get Sinai called two different things. We, we get repeats of epi- – right? So – Sometimes that explains it because you've got to have the northern tradition and the southern tradition in that book or, or nobody's going to buy it. Or only half your population's going to buy it, which does not build you a unified nation. So that's one theory. Other people say this is way later. That it's post-exile. And that it is in looking to understand how the exile could happen that this gets put together that they already it's been around but that it's not really codified or redacted and put together like this until after the exile so that's a whole nother set right of sociological political issues that would drive people to bring but but this came into formation before that in terms of the, this narrative and so, so and this may be a hard question to answer but how do, with all of that how do we how do I make it so that it doesn't matter so that it doesn't matter when it's we can't know right who wrote it when to some degree so much of this is so hard to wrestle how, how do we what's your mindset going into reading a chapter or verse uh, so that it, it doesn't matter that the universal human experience is having to wrestle with evil it's having to wrestle with hitler it's having to, like, it, it doesn't, unfortunately, go away. This is one example of our people wrestling with, right, absolute power, what that means for the victims, right? So, and, and what is the meaning that comes out of that 400 years of suffering, right? And, and this is one example of our people doing that, unfortunately. <laughs> We've had to continue to do it, and and everywhere in the world, people have to wrestle with both natural catastrophe, right, but also tyrants, real tyrants, which is how the tradition understands Pharaoh, um, and real victims, and that the victims don't look great. I got to tell you, in this story, we don't look great in this story, which again is something I value. That how how do we recognize what our own seeing ourselves as victims does to us? Because I think that's one of the ways we can counter the effects of suffering. 
is to say, right, is to say, if we go there, if we stay there, look, look, these people are not people you want to emulate, right? As they schlep through and complain and they schlep through and panic and book is filled with those people. That that's right, and that's why they have to die. They will not go into the promised land. So for me, some of the deep teaching about this is what is the part of us that has to die? What are the beliefs, the restrictions that we put on ourselves, the, the, the despondence? What do we have to allow to collapse in the desert to be able to move into a new reality that is the promised land? And that is the call. I believe that is why Pesach is observed even in non-observant homes by something crazy like 96% of Jews. The only thing that is done by most Jews, almost all Jews, in some form or fashion, is the Passover Seder. Even if it's calling up a friend to say, I have nowhere to go. They don't care they have nowhere to go for Hanukkah. Or, right? Or if even Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, whatever. But Seder? Right? Why, what is so compelling uh, right, about that? I, I think it is so true for all time. And individually for us, what this year do I need to let go of? So I'm not, so I'm not this person <laughs> on this page, right? Saying, in short, if, if, if somebody says, Rabbi, I mean, what has to die before we can enter the promised land? You're saying, seeing ourselves as a, as a victim. That's one of the things I think this story is definitely about. As long as we continue to see ourselves as victims and as powerless. They, all they do is turn on Moses and Aaron the minute something else scares them. Right? They're not able to do it. They have to die. They, they can't do it. They, they build the golden calf when Moses is late. And I'm not saying, I don't want to make characterize it as like I'm just blaming them. There's lots of times I have deep compassion for them, the same way I have deep compassion for the parts of myself that panic and then snap my daughter's head off because I'm panicked that she's right going to hurt herself. So I come across as angry rather than whatever. So... What was I answering? <laughs> um, so, so right. So there's things we have to let go of, and let and the the, the metaphor is dying in the desert because some, only a new part of us that is not traumatized as slaves as victims, only that part of us can build something new, a new reality, a new possibility, because we, we can't see it when we're schlepping in the desert, going oh my god, right. And looking for somebody to blame, and looking for somebody to stone. Right, right. Lynn. So if everybody would indulge me, I look at this and I'm thinking about where we are today, and I'm thinking about climate change, mm-hmm. and that it scares me. And in how many thousands of years, or maybe not even that long, as theologians look back at this period of time and could label place the drought, and then came the rain, and then came the mudslides, and hearts were hardened, our world leaders, and that they wouldn't recognize that this is what was going on and wouldn't make a change. And then those of us were sitting here were victims. Well, we're, we're part of the problem, too. Those of us driving SUVs or still eating meat or, you know, each one of us can play a little role. And so as theologians look back on this time, and I don't know, we don't know what it's going to end up looking like, what will they write? And as we're sitting here discussing, are we in the middle now (laughs) of plagues, of an exodus? 100% we are. 100% we are. So it's very clear to some of us where the fault lies for that. That that's where it's problematic for me to shift it onto a deity. Because then we don't have to take responsibility for the fact that we are killing the planet. So there's a midrash that says, because of a grammatical thing I won't go into, oh my God, because we don't have any time, um, that, that there was actually one big frog. One big frog that came out of the water and the people saw it and they took sticks and started beating it. And it was beating it that made it split off. Like the more they beat it, the more it broke into little pieces. And that's what caused the actual plague of thousands and thousands and thousands of frogs. And an article I read online about environmentalism says, 
Because that's what we do. We see a plague, you know, like whatever, and we take a stick and start beating it rather than saying, what do we do? What happened that we have a massive frog coming out of the river? (laughs) And that that's what we do. We're holding the sticks. And we are holding our sticks by driving our SUVs, right? That we don't want to look at what was the cause, right? So even the rabbis got it that you know their midrash is that, that we made that danger into a full fledged plague because we don't want to look, we don't want to take responsibility, we don't want to own the way our hearts have been hardened, um, and so there's lots of work being done about connecting, you know, this narrative to the plagues of our time. For me, it's one way in. But it doesn't really get at the meaning, right? Because because this is all about it wasn't human; it was God. That's all this text is about. God did this, right? So it's a whole different kind of allegory that it's exploring, meaning that it's exploring. Then I do think it's meaningful to say, like with Noah, as with this. In this case, that's how they understood the world that God brings. We we know differently now about our part. And I don't mean we're better or smarter. We Humanity has learned more about the ways our behavior impacts the world. We can't, we can't look to God, right? It, it's on us now. We know now. I'll come back just for one second on David's question, the, the one about when this was written and where it comes from. Mm-hmm. We don't know, and we will not know. Not in any of our lifetimes, and we may never know. We won't. Unless someone invents a machine that can go back in time. So that is unknowable. What we do know, and there's no question about this, is what we as a Jewish people have done with this. So that's what I was trying to say. The ongoing project and the ongoing discussion. And for me, that's the living Torah. The living Torah is not so much... Did these words come from here? They come from there? They come from God? They come from people? Or was it in 365 or 852 BCE or whatever? But it's what our continuing generations have done with it and what we do with it here every week. That it is, it is the, if you want, the center of what some people call the Jewish project. Okay? The, Jew, the ongoing Jewish discussion of which we are part. And when we wrestle with God... We wrestle with Torah as well, and that's just what we do. And that that's we know. that's why I said I think it's what remains meaning. It's why it's what brings Jews to the seder table because it's still a meaningful endeavor to ask these questions about where am I stuck? What, you know, where are we as a society stuck? That we're calling global warming still a hypothesis? Really? Or sorry, no. People are clear that it's a reality. But it's happened before in interglacial periods. And so the question is, is human behavior... Really? Really? Where are we stuck? Uh, how about owning responsibility for what we know? Oh, okay. So, that, you know, so we still get charged up, right? Because Mitzrayim doesn't go away. The Egypt experience doesn't go away. It's a question of what is it for us that's like really me trying this year. Because that's where our passion, right, to change and to be different, hopefully, right, is is found in strength. All right, let's go to verse 21. I just want to get through 21 because I'm going to give you something uh, from the rabbis on a piece of 21 that I think is nice to close with. Then Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, go and sacrifice to your God within the land. But Moses replied, it would not be right to do this, for what we sacrifice to the Lord our God is untouchable to the Egyptians. If we sacrifice that which is untouchable to the Egyptians before their very eyes, will they not stone us? So we must go a distance of three days into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as he may command us. Pharaoh said, I will let you go to sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness, but do not go very far. 
Plead then for me. And Moses said, When I leave your presence, I will plead with the Lord that the swarms of insects depart tomorrow from Pharaoh and his courtiers and his people. But let not Pharaoh again act deceitfully, not letting the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. Okay, because that's the original request. We forget that. The original request is not let my people go forever. Mm. Moshe's request, and we can talk about another time, what does it mean that Moshe's not exactly telling the truth? Does Moshe know the truth, right? Let us go sacrifice to our God in the desert for three days. That's what Moshe asks for. Not free the slaves, right? Let them, we need to go worship our God in the desert for three days. Pharaoh keeps... Huh? He was planning on leaving. Who? We don't know. Moses. Oh, yeah. Or was he planning on oh, sacrificing yeah. for three days? We, that is the, that would be a nice two-hour class. Okay. And he's also so, to uh, 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 Pharaoh not, not to be deceitful. He's planning to, to take the Hebrews away, but he's telling them. So, right, that's, right. So that's the pot calling the kettle, whatever, I am. So how do we know? We don't know what Moshe knows, right? We don't know what Moshe knows, exactly. So, but one could make the claim, he knows this is not just about going into the desert and going back, right? So, But we don't know. Um, in any case, so in, if he knows, then Reuben's right. This is the pot calling the kettle, something else. Because he's being deceitful, as he says to Pharaoh, don't be deceitful. If he doesn't know, okay, so let's read it either way, because here's where I want to stop. So what is, what is Moses, when, when Pharaoh says, you want to sacrifice to your God, go ahead. But you're not leaving Egypt to do it. What's Moshe's argument? Why? Why? What would ruffle the population of the Egyptians' fe- feathers <laughs> um, if they sacrifice in the land? Because what, what we're going to sacrifice is not what your Egyptians are going to see. Why don't they want to see it? Well, we're going to sacrifice. You don't want to see because it's the animal. It's untouchable. What makes it untouchable? What? It's a god or something. Ah, so this is very important, especially for later. The Egyptians represent their gods by animals, right? Think about it for all the iconography you know from being exposed to ancient Egyptian hieroglyphs, hieroglyphics, right? So they represent their god with the head of an animal. One of those, just for example, is a ram. If you have a ram god, what is a baby ram? A lamb. Sheep. Right? What are the Israelites going to be told to keep tied up for three days in the backyard and then slaughter? Lambs. It's not an accident. So you take a god. So that meant certain things were off limits. You don't sacrifice sheep because it's an image of the God that has the ram's head. So what Moshe's saying is, we can't stay here because we don't know the instructions of our God yet as to what we're going to have to sacrifice. And it's possible that we're going to have to sacrifice something that is going to make the Egyptians very, very, very upset with us, which of course is what happens exactly later. And we're going to, I don't know if we do that this year or not, but it's a great part of the story. So, so it's going to make them very, very upset with us. And what does he say? Will they not stone us? Like the, it's that dangerous for us to take a sacred cow of Egypt, right? That's why it's called that, a sacred cow, something you can't touch because it's been made sacred, whether it's true or not, right? That's how we use that phrase. For this reason, it's very dangerous. So Moshe makes a compelling argument. that So we need to leave so whatever we sacrifice to our God is not going to get us killed. So that might make some sense to Pharaoh. Could you argue to me why that could sound ridiculous to Pharaoh? Because they live in separate areas. Maybe they're separate enough that Pharaoh's like, what? Who's going to see you? You live in the slums of the Hebrew camp. Like, possibly. Why do they want to come back. Okay, so maybe he doesn't believe the premise, right, that they're going to return. Or maybe he doesn't believe 
our God is more powerful than their how God <laughs> right um, it's possible that Pharaoh looks at Moses and goes wait a minute the prophet and high priest of these people doesn't know what rituals the God requires right that, that doesn't make a lot of sense think like an Egyptian you know you turn to your your big powerful religious leader they're the only ones who know what the God wants Right? That's why you keep them employed. Because they're the ones that know what the God wants. So you can imagine Pharaoh going to looking at Moses going, You don't know what your God requires? How are you a leader of this people? Who who do you ask? Right? Okay. So so let us leave and I will and we will sacrifice in the desert. Okay. A peace by Rabbi, uh, this is a book by Rabbi Larry Tabak that I just bought. Um, we love being able to just click a button. When you see something from somebody, you go, I need that book. Click, done. It arrives like three days later. Um, and it's called The Aura of Torah, a Kabbalistic Hasidic commentary to the weekly readings by a reform British rabbi. Wow. So I figured... How bad can it be? Yeah. Yeah. He's married to the first woman rabbi in England. See, I knew he was a good guy. And we met these interviews. Excellent. So he has several on each parsha. So we're going to look at the one labeled number 42, sensitivity to others. Yes? Yes. Very good. It's on the right side of one of the pages. On one side of your pages. Yeah? Okay. So, three plagues have passed. Blood, frogs, and lice. That's where we are today. And still Pharaoh was adamant. The fourth plague arrives and Pharaoh, in frustration, offers to let the Israelites sacrifice to their God, but only in Egypt itself, not out in the wilderness, as Moses had requested. In the verse quoted up here that we just saw that we just read in our Torah, Moses explains why this will not work. Mordechai of Nishis was the first Rebbe of the Nishis dynasty and famous for his miracles. He had been a disciple of Yechiel Michal of Zlochev, of course. That is, and here's a quote from him, um, the Nishitze Rebbe, that is, Moses intended to say, clearly it is true that they will not stone us because Moses trusted in God. In other words, Moses isn't saying, will they not stone us? How could he say that? That would mean he doesn't believe God will protect them. That is not what he meant to say. He meant to say, of course they won't stone us because he trusts that God will protect them, right? But because of my sensitive nature, it is not proper in my view to do this thing that is so opposed to their view. What is he arguing? He's arguing Moshe wasn't afraid that they'd be stoned, God forbid. He was afraid he'd hurt their feelings. He was afraid it would be offensive. It would ruffle their feathers. And he, and he doesn't decide not to do it because he's afraid. Mm-hmm. He's Moshe. He trusts completely that God will protect them. It can't possibly be motivated by fear because that would make no sense coming from Moses. So then what does it mean? It means Moshe truly believed, says the Hasidic teaching, because what is the Hasidic tradition always going to do with these texts? How do we apply it? How do we make meaning in our lives today? And I love this one. Um, That these were, you know, that this is really why he doesn't want to do it because it's so opposed to the way the Egyptians see the world. It's so offensive. Go to your next, uh, go to the next thing where it says comment. Mm-hmm. Turn your paper over, right? Where it says comment. According to the Rebbe of Nishis, Moses is not prepared to sacrifice in Egypt out of respect for Egyptian beliefs. The ancient Egyptian god, I don't know how you say that, had the head of a ram. The sacrifice of sheep by the Israelites would have been seen as an affront. Like the Israelites of old, we too live among people of many religious faiths, all different from our own or none at all. Right? People who don't have any faith at all. 
Even if we do not fear attack by those whom we might upset, we should be careful not to offend others, especially with regard to their religious beliefs, which are often dearly held, even if not always acted upon. Religious beliefs by their nature deal with that which is ultimately unknowable. Therefore, no one faith, no one group can possess the whole truth. Each has at best only a portion. It is our duty to respect the faith of others for they too may have a portion of truth. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.